This is episode 28 of Breeze and Freedom for Tuesday, May 8th, 2012. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And uh, I was going to say the continuing Fosdom stories, but I said that last time. Did you? Yep. So we've still going through these recordings. Nobody's actually complained, though, that we've gone through them. That means people aren't listening or they like it. Um, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. So uh, a number of people wrote in about the whole code codes thing. And I told them that I wasn't going to mention them by name, but that I would mention that many people wrote in and had various opinions. Many of them had arguments about why should be code and that that's syntactically correct. Language is a tough thing. I don't know. It's just, I just think that it's, it's, we should have more rigorous approaches to these things. Well, English is pretty terrible for consistent rules anyway. They can write them down. I don't know. I just hate that usage defines language. That's just not right. I love that. <laughs> well, because stupid. I think it's calling things existing. what they are. No, it's that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so we we've picked. Um, I think we only have a couple of Fosdom talks left. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. We're we gonna do this next year at the Fos- We're gonna do this track next year. We're we gonna record everything again and play everything on the show. I don't know. I mean, we actually haven't played it. We're not going to play every talk from that session. That's true. Some of the recordings didn't turn out well. Like and Dave Neary's talk, sadly, it was just too much Q&A and there was no mics in the audience. And Yep. And, and just that, you know, and there were other talks too that just weren't, um, that the, the recording wasn't so good. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it'll also depend on what the format is next year. I mean, I sort of felt like the problem, uh, one of the reasons why these recordings are so good here on this oddcast is that they're short, which is nice. But in person, it was like kind of a frustrating length. It was a little too short. We talked about this at the time. Um, yeah, there'll probably be longer slots next year. Actually, I think so. That there'll Fosdem be fewer sh- talks. I think that Fosdem should uh, standardize standardize on the time slot times for all the things. It was a real that would problem. be so much better because you pretty much have to you pretty much have to understand that you're going to miss a whole talk a whole talk's worth if you switch tracks. The way it was this past year. Yep, that's correct. And, and going between the legal room and the desktop room was really just stuff I just I miss a lot. It's always been that way though. Yeah, it really sucks. Yeah, I mean that's a that's that. But see, the thing is, is that, that there's a lot of other weird things that people complain about Fosdem, but I think that one is livable. If it, I mean the, all, I'm sorry, all the other ones are livable. If they just fix that thing where all tracks had the same slots, everything else would be fine. Maybe they do that because they're worried about the the halls being too crowded for the change. At the, at the breaks, right? Because it could be, of course, they're at school. They're used to dealing with this, yeah. right? Yeah. It doesn't know. really make a lot of sense to me. Cause there are times when everybody is, you know, at the beginning of the day and. That's true. There are other times when it's crowded. Actually, kind of fun when it's really swamped. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, but they have all those rules about the, anyway. Well, we're going next year. It'll be my second trip to Fosdom. I should have been going all along, obviously. I also didn't realize how much the dev rooms were really the conference. That's what I didn't realize. Yeah. Like, and I would look at the main track and I'd be like, well, my talk didn't get accepted on the main track and which it never does, um, which I realized the main track is basically it's the keynotes. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I thought the main track was just the main track. And then there was all these other, like, I thought they were breakout rooms. 
That's what I thought Fausto no, was. No, but it's interesting because the keynotes, basically, the keynotes or the main track happened at the same time when there were so many other talks going on. So True it, it also wasn't like a real keynote either. It's really interesting. It's like, you, you know, I, I thought beforehand that the main track was somehow, I don't know, was more exciting than it was. Not that the talks weren't exciting or anything like that. It's just, um, you know, and I had, I had real criticisms about it because I was, I was surprised that there were no, there was only one woman in the entire main track. And I was just kind of surprised. Um, I didn't really want to complain about it because I'd submitted a talk and it wasn't accepted and I don't mind about that. <laughs> um, so that was, that was totally fine. But it was just one of those things where I, I sort of thought that they were really more like keynotes. And then when we were there, I realized that there were so many other talks going on at the same time that I barely made it to any main track talks. Mm -hmm. There were two that really were keynotes. I forget whose they were, where there was nothing against them. I'm trying to remember. I forget whose they were. But anyway, so, uh, so this is, uh, um, low, low eek, which I've, I, as I, well, we're not going to hear this from crying and ask this to be cut out because. Oh, I, you are? Of course I am. <laughs> was it's going to be cut out. I, sorry. But, um, um, I've never really said Loic's name right. And I think I've got it now. Loic? That's apparently it. Well, you took French, so you know how to speak French. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to speak French for starters. And secondly, I, I mispronounce all sorts of things, um, being a, 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 Terrible, terribly uneducated American. So I actually, but, yeah. I actually asked Louis to submit. Dacherie? Is that how? I, that's I how know. you say it because you're French or you know yeah. French. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know French. Neither of those things are correct, Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, he, so uh, I asked him to submit a talk roughly around this topic, and he agreed. Uh, and it's uh, it, it's it's related to Michael Meek's talk, which he makes reference to during the talk, because it's about the issue of companies and enforcement and can companies do enforcement and still be effectively moral and ethical uh and considering the question uh, i think it's really interesting uh i don't know if if Luik has said publicly where he works now he does not in the talk and i don't know if he has yet um, you can actually figure it out from uh, context and searching around but i won't say it since that since he hasn't. Said I thought I actually thought it was in the slides, which I didn't. Oh, may have been. We may or may not have the slides uh, because Luik is so busy with his new job. Um, he recently said to me on on IRC, "We're busy bees." Um, yeah, he said that. Okay. That was an interesting phrase. It's weird when uh, when people who aren't native English speakers use a idiomatic expression. Idiomatic expression that's kind of quaint, and I don't know if if Luik realizes that it's like really kind of a. I don't know. I've heard English speakers say that. They do say that. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, I would never th expect a developer to say it. Let's put it that way. Like, that's not how, like. But Luik is an individual. He says a lot of things that I wouldn't expect developers to say. That is true, actually. <laughs> that is true. He's, and he's I mean a very that in the coolest developer. of all possible ways. Yeah, he's, he's a very unique developer. I mean, that's, I've known him for a long time. I, I've, I've never told publicly the story of when I met him. Um, it, the conversation actually went like this. I met him in 2000, finally in person. Um, I knew, I knew him as a GNU contributor for many years and he was standing at, at, at it was actually the man, get this people, the Mandrake, uh, party at, uh, Solutions GNU Linux conference, which no longer exists, company, which no longer exists. <laughs> um, and Mandrake eventually was bought by the other, the, the Connectiva and they became Mandriva. And now there's actually stuff about them trying to stay in business even to this day, but they sort of are defunct, uh, but desperately trying to stay in existence as a distribution. Anyway, um, and Henry Poole, who is now on the Free Software Nation board, was CEO of Mandrake at the time, just recently announced. And he was there hosting this party. And then 
I saw Luik there, and I knew I recognized him from his online picture. Mm-hmm. And I said, "You're Luik," and he said, "Who?" I said, "You are, and you're famous." <laughs> and he turned around 360 degrees and said, "Where?" <laughs> that was my first conversation. In I could with I Luik. could imagine that happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, his English was not as good in those days, um, but uh, but it was it was a very funny exchange. Anyway, so he is a I think he's a famous free software developer. He doesn't think of himself as famous, but he's been involved with free software a very long time, and and was really watching this whole thing happen with MySQLAB and and how how GPL was used, and having been involved with enforcement himself in France. Um, it, it I think it's all very interesting, and obviously I agree with him about a lot of stuff. So it's very easy yeah, for me to yeah. agree so easily. I think we all do. Meaning me and you. <laughs> yeah. And Luik is also the on the two. board of uh, Software Freedom Conservancy. I forgot to mention that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. He didn't mention that in his talk, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, his, his slides may be online. I think the talk is fine without the slides. Uh, I'm going to leave. Uh, I'm going to ask Dan to leave the first question in because it's completely audible when I listen uh-huh. to it. The yep. ones after that were not, so we're going to cut those. Um, and, uh, and have a listen. Yeah, I, guess. I think what's, oh, sorry, I know you were just about to stop. I was going to say one of the things that's interesting about it is it gives you a flavor of some of the enforcement that happens more, um, more casually over the years. A lot of it turned into more formal enforcement that, mm-hmm. uh, Louis has been involved in. But I think there's a lot of that, like, just, you know, calling people up and asking them if they would comply. A lot of, like, sort of early level, um, enforcement work that happens. And many people wouldn't even consider it to be enforcement work as such. And, you know, Louis said, in his talk, you know, I didn't take it professional. Um, yeah, I know. It's it's funny that he said. Well, let's actually let's play oh, the talk. Oh yeah, and talk yeah, about yeah that. right. Okay. And he is going to speak about something that we invited him to talk about, which is this idea of what happens when for-profit companies attempt to use the. GPL and copyleft in complicated ways, and is it possible to do copyleft without doing that kind of corruption? So, with that, Louis. Hey. So, uh, yeah, the topic is introduced, so I don't need, uh, and there is a spoiler, that is the answer will be yes, and I'm particularly uh, interested in this answer because of my background which I will explain. So uh, I'm a developer. I write code. I've wrote code for 25 years now. Uh, and I happen to have done uh, enforcement as a volunteer for the FSF in France for 10 years. It happened by accident. And I never went pro as uh, SFLC or the Free Software Foundation. And because I was the only one interested in that in France, uh, I came upon uh, very simple cases where someone would call and ask to talk to FSF France and I would answer and it would end within a day and a one hour discussion and the problem was over. The enforcement problem was over. And there were also extremely complicated cases like the one I started in 2001, which was helping a governmental agency uh, who was who had been delivered uh, a VNC implementation in violation of the license. And their provider, so the, the agency was AFPA, 
and the violator was EDU4. And so they, they went to, uh, to us to ask uh, what happens, it's free software, we don't know anything about it. And the violator went to us too, to the Free Software Foundation friend, and asked uh, if we did something wrong, we, we don't think we did. And we were in a very bizarre situation where it got very, very complicated because there was a lot of money. It was a contract that was 10 million euros at the time. And uh, so it, it dragged for almost 10 years and was eventually resolved in 2010 by the um, uh, Court of Appeal uh, in France uh, ruling against the violator. And then uh, the Supreme Court in French, which is called the uh, Cour de Cassation, who denied the appeal of uh, the violator to uh, run again. So that, that was the longest case I ever worked on. And in between, uh, I always did that on my spare time. Now, the topic of this talk uh, is of particular interest to me because I started recently to uh, work for a for-profit company. And as part of my work, uh, I have a free software contract. That is, uh, I'm like this, uh, vegetarian people. I refuse to uh, use free software. I refuse to write, uh, I refuse to, sorry, use <laughs> proprietary software. I refuse to write proprietary software. And there is no question about using a little bit of it, just like a vegetarian would, would not accept to eat a little bit of meat. And so, uh, all the companies I applied to uh, just refused my candidacy because of that, except one recently accepted it. Uh, I will not name it because the context of this talk is quite controversial. Uh, but that's where this interest uh, came to me. So, uh, the, the global context of this talk is we think of uh, a company who has a service, uh, has a possible service business model. Like if you think MySQL, uh, MySQL, for most people, they, they just uh, sold uh, services. They had a great uh, free software out there, and people would come to them and ask to port it to a different context to add some features, etc. So they would actually sell time. And that's also <coughs> the context in which my current company is. It's a uh, uh, cloud making company, they, they do some managed hosting, they are turning into uh, looking, trying to, to place themselves in the cloud, because uh, managed hosting is something of the past and the cloud is the future. So they, they really sell their expertise, which is uh, powered by uh, manpower, not by selling proprietary licenses. So in a sense, uh, the context of this talk is uh, when a company has the ability to do that. MySQL uh, had this possibility because they had a software that was uh, widely distributed uh, to the point that it became a de facto standard, allowing them to sell services. In the context of my company, it's not really that because we didn't produce any software yet. But still, I don't see uh, how a hosting company could sell a proprietary software. It makes no sense. 
So the, the problem um, is that MySQL really had a proprietary software business model on top of their, uh, or maybe under their uh, services uh, business model. When a potential customer came to them and say, uh, this free software stuff is great, but that's not for me. I'm kind of uh, against this principle, and I would like to make proprietary software out of your software. Then they would agree to that and grant the company a proprietary license of MySQL. So this, is, this has nothing to do with free software. And in order to do that, there is no other way than being the sole owner of the copyright of the software. Otherwise, it does not work. And that comes back to the Michael Mick's uh, talk and Alison talk. Uh, this is the only possible way to do that. Now, when you do copyleft, you must be prepared to enforce the license. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And if you, if you do copyleft and uh, when something happens that violates the license, you must be at least prepared to go to the person who does wrong to ask kindly, uh, please do something about it. So that happens all the time because uh, the software is copied in binary form and then given away. And when that happens, most of the time in the, in the corporate uh, context, there is no source to come with it. People forget about it. Then, usually you go to the violator, you ask for them to uh, go in compliance, to give their customer or their user the corresponding source code for their binary so that they can exercise their rights under the copyleft license. When this fails, maybe because they don't want to talk to you, maybe because you don't talk to the right person, you can get a lawyer involved. And not in uh, not going to court, but actually have a lawyer and send, uh, send a letter to the violator asking in a less kind way, uh, please provide the complete and corresponding source code. And if it all fails, like in the case I was talking about, uh, AFPA against EG4, then you, you go to court and you have judges involved and it gets really ugly. So that's what license enforcement is about. Now, in, in the context of a nonprofit, which is the context which I know, what we demand is fairly simple. We demand compliance. When someone uh, violates la the license for many years, uh, all we ask from them is that they comply to the copyleft license. <coughs> we ask also for a financial uh, compensation because we, if we have to have lawyers involved or if we have to have uh, the employees of the nonprofit paid to care for this specific violation, then it costs. 
And it would be unfair that the donators to the nonprofit pay for the mistakes of the company. So we would ask for the uh, company for to reimburse the legal uh, and uh, uh, employees' time. We would also ask extended uh, things in exchange for reinstating their rights under the license. That is, we make a lot of efforts to go to the violator and explain to them what they should do, but we are not uh, focusing on a narrow area. If, for instance, you have a ISP provider with a box and there is BusyBox inside or IP tables and a lot of other free software, when we ask for compliance, we, we, we don't just ask for compliance for our stuff, for the stuff for which we represent an author. We would ask that, please, also make it right to the other copyleft software, which they usually do. Where, uh, that's a bit of a mix with the next slide. So MySQL was not known to do that. They were known to require the acquisition of a proprietary license, which is a repeat of that. So what, what happens uh, when you are a for-profit like MySQL? Of course, you don't have the same agenda. So you see that honest mistakes are made all the time. What happens when you see someone who is very wealthy, who made a mistake and lost his right under the license? That is, he is not allowed to use MySQL anymore. He is not allowed to use the copyleft. So you go to them, you explain to them that they have either to get rid of this software or to negotiate with you. But now your demands uh, as a for-profit company would be completely different. When you have someone who has a lot of money, you're not thinking about the future of free software. You're thinking about your profit. So in a sense, the uh, distribution of free software acts uh, for your benefit in the same kind of way uh, the illegal copies of proprietary software uh, act. Uh, you know that uh, I've been told that uh, there are more than 50% of the Windows license out there which are illegal. But then you hear that Microsoft claims that they have 90% uh, of the market, so it plays in their benefit too. And also when they go after a corporation that has illegal copies, they make money out of it. It's pre-sales. <laughs> so, in the end, so I repeat, uh, MySQL was known to ask that in exchange uh, for coming into compliance, they would buy a proprietary license of their product instead of just going to compliance. Unfortunately, there is a conflict when the company does that, has that kind of strategy and uh, because uh, the, the agenda of the um, uh, free software community is different, and when a company does that, it scares the people away from free software. I will not repeat all the other problems that have already been stated, 
by the fact that you have just one company uh, owning all the copyright and so on. But just for this enforcement act, this is bad for the reputation of uh, free software as a well. whole. Not because we go to enforce our rights as a non-profit when you ask for compliance, this is good. Copyleft exists to be respected. But if you go uh, out and enforce for the money and hit hard on an honest mistake, then... Uh, So now I'm in a company. <laughs> so I must be careful not to repeat that mistake. I figured out that uh, it would be really simple to have a solution by just applying these three points. We publish under a copyleft license. We are in the cloud, and I partly disagree with Michael on that. Uh, we need a GPL, not ALGPL. We are specifically based on uh, OpenStack layer, which is under permissive license. And because of that, the 200 companies that are known to work on OpenStack, which is a fairly recent uh, project, only do proprietary software on top of this permissive license. <laughs> so we are in a context where if we write a software, we would be the only one writing free software. So we must take the step of protecting ourselves from all these other companies who would just rip off our free software and make it into proprietary software. If we chose a possible ALGPL, we would also give them permission to do that. From a business point of view, it does not make sense. So we go for copyleft, strong copyleft, to face our proprietary competitors. Then we want to control copyright on significant portions. One of the problems of enforcing copyrights is that when you go to court, in about everywhere in the world, but specifically in France, you must show that you own copyright on a designated portion of the code that is deemed original that can be uh, identified by the judge as a work, as a wall. It's not enough, in France specifically, to just say, I did 80% uh, of the commits. You need to be uh, able to say, on this part, and it must not be just one file, on this part, I did it the work, I did the work, I did it myself. And then you can enforce copyright for the wall. You only need a, a specific portion to go to court and enforce. And then as part of the negotiation to reinstate the violator into his rights, we would ask that the wall is respected. But we only need a significant part to go to court. And there comes the third uh, precaution to avoid uh, being corrupt is that you don't uh, own the copyright of the world. You make sure you depend on other copyleft software. It could be because you have some contributions of your software which are copyleft. That is, you accept without a contributor li license agreement 
a significant contribution that is copyleft and the author is someone else. That's actually something where uh, I'm currently hunting for people who want to work with us on specific portions and own their own copyright. And with that, we have a diverse, as the, um, the pie uh, Michael was showing, we have a diverse copyright ownership that prevents us as a company to uh, do malpractice on behalf of the community as well. I don't see any flow in that, but I thought about it only a month and a half ago, so if you see anything wrong, I'd be happy to discuss it. One of the advantage of doing that when I start to work in the company is that it's a lot easier to do it at the beginning when the stakes are not big. Maybe in three years from now, if we're not too stupid, we will have a nice piece of software. But then it will be a lot more difficult to convince the management and the lawyers and the investors that this is a good idea. Because they will see that ownership of the code can translate into proprietary software. But if we did do that from the beginning, in three years from now, they would have no choice. So they, would, they, they will think about something else that would be good for free software and for us. Uh, I think I said that already, right? And so that's it. I tell her that for 20 minutes because I wanted your input. Maybe I did uh, I said something wrong, or maybe you already thought uh, about something else to uh, to avoid corruption, and for questions. Thank you. Yep. Um, this point about adding uh, copyleft dependencies is very useful as well if you worry that your management might, at some point in, down the line, decide that this whole free software thing was a mistake and changed their mind. If you have included a copyleft dependency, then that decision would come with a decision to rewrite that part and remove it somehow. And this is not a decision that typical software companies choose to make. Um, and that would save you from having to make the difficult decision of whether to carry on working on what is now proprietary software or finding a new job. Yeah. And I must say that even that decision at a very early stage uh, is not common. Uh, I mean, finding a CEO who is not uh, dumb, uh, taking this decision, he clearly sees uh, that he will never be able to go back. But uh, it's also extraordinarily difficult to recruit a uh, technical team uh, that works. So I think in the company we are uh, now three people uh, working for development. It took more than a year uh, for the company to recruit us in the context of the cloud. You, you may have seen that it's like uh, in the early 2000s with Web 2.0. It's about impossible to hire someone who is competent. So uh, here we stand. We can have that kind of demands and they would say, okay, uh, we don't like it, but okay.
So now we're we're um, we're back after the talk, but for us, it's just right. Um, we're, it's like well, you were, you were saying so. before we listened uh, that about uh, taking a professional. Actually, I, I wasn't in the room because, as people know from the the, the, the continuing Fosdem stories, uh, that I was managing the queue outside uh, during the, the during the talks and so forth. So I didn't hear the talks when they happened. So I heard this in the recording later, and and I I, I wish I'd been in the room when he said professional because, in some sense, what he's saying is that that I'm. A professional GPL enforcer, and I think that was an important thing to point out that there's a lot of would-be GPL enforcement. A great example is the whole VLC thing in the App Store. I mean, that was basically a community enforcement effort that happened. Um, and and I, I admit that I sometimes ignore that part of the 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 the, the uh, volunteer and community enforcement. That's yeah, happening. I just think that there's a lot of that going on because when people find out about it, the first thing they do is they say, "Hey, you know." You you're, you know, you're violating license or they don't say it that way. They say, where can I get the source code? You don't provide an offer. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I think, I think that, I, that until listening to Luke's talk, I had not really thought about the fact that that was, that's still all ongoing. In fact, that's how I started and got involved. Mm -hmm. yeah, you sort of forget that that's all ongoing. And I intersect that at actually probably its worst point because what happens with the enforcement I do a lot is I end up being CC'd as the discussion gets contentious, right? So some developer or some user is emailing somebody trying to get source code and then the conversation has not gone well and it's gotten contentious. So I see a lot of these people who I'm trying to right, calm down right. and I'm like, stop it. Let's, let's, let's try to do the, because we never start enforcement with aggression. And a lot of people have gotten to the point where they're aggressive right. and it's new to them. So they're like, uh, it's, it's a travesty from their point of view. Yeah. Well, right. Because by the time they're contacting you or SFLC or whoever they're contacting about it, it they've been frustrated. Well, there's Generally. that, and also um, there's the issue of that that they. It, it, what I mean by they think it's a travesty is that they basically it's the first time they've ever encountered a, a violation. So right. for them, it's a big deal. I wrote a blog right, post about right, this a long right, time right. ago where it's not a big deal anymore because basically it's so mundane to have yet another GPL violation. I see hundreds all the time. Um, and for, But for that specific user who just got that device, it's that feeling of I can't build yeah. the source code. Or especially if it's a developer who sees his own copyrights being, you know, being used in a way that he didn't want them used in. Mm -hmm. So that's that's frustrating. Like, and that's a great the VLC example is a good yeah. example of that. And and then the fights. You kind of understand why community. people get so agitated about yeah. it because it's sort of you know it's their their own work. Yeah, I mean, I'm just so jaded and seen so much of it that it's. I mean, I, I I've somehow I've some somewhat lost the passion. That's the sad part. I I, I keep going on because well, it's you've right. also become you know really skeptical or not skeptical, but um, you know it's like people who've worked in the DA's office for a long time start sometimes assuming the worst of people. <laughs> um, you know, like, I think you you might err on the side of assuming there's a violation. No, I, I, I think I've seen said, so many. I, I finally got uh, Dave Turner to, to clear publicly that I could quote him on this. Uh, D Dave Turner um, told me once he didn't want to do GPL enforcement anymore because it made him think like a cop, and he doesn't want to think like a cop. Uh, yeah, well, that's funny, because you sort of, you, in the um, Free as in Freedom channel on... Uh, on Freeno today, told me, mentioned well, today that, being May fourth. Oh yeah, today being May fourth right. when we're recording, not the date of release. I did write in the channel that we were recording. I know. Um, oh, you were looking over my shoulder. 
Oh, oh, you mean just now? Just now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, now they're just going to be all complaining that it's not live. I thought you you mentioned that we well, were Well, nobody recording. said anything. Oh, okay. They're mostly uh, on It's pretty US, late. They're mostly U.S. Eastern people and European people. And so even So between later the two of them, but between Europe and U.S. Eastern, there's nobody left there. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I... What were you oh, saying about this? So you, you, said, you said in Channel Today that, um, that uh, I'm becoming a better person the longer I spend... Um, that I'm becoming better the the longer I spend working um, not as a lawyer, and uh, and it's exactly those kinds of mentalities that are associated with being a lawyer. So it's really interesting that just to hear you say that so soon, so hard on the heels of what you had said earlier. Today. Well, I mean, I don't I don't really think I, I still work very hard to think about violations, each violation fresh, and and not treat it like a like a, a cop. I I mean I. Um, I, I mean, I probably, my, my perception of GPL violations is more as a, as sort of a, a wounded bystander. I mean, that's how I feel. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to do the right thing. Given yeah, but you're not really because you are in a sense acting as the. Oh, sure. But I mean, you I, know, once you're the enforcer, you're not, you're not. I'm usually enforcing for either copyrights that are held by conservancy it's or It's exactly like the role of a lawyer, right? Someone's entrusted you with advocating for them and their interests. Mm, yeah, I guess maybe a little bit, but I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to be a lawyer because lawyers are mostly people I don't want to be. Okay. So uh, the the other thing that that Louis was talking about that I think is really important is this question of of how for profit companies can do yeah. it. And I, I really liked Louis's attitude. I I told him this after the talk. I did hear this beginning of it because I was walking out as he said it um, that day at Fosdem. This thing about being a vegetarian because I'm also a vegetarian, and it's really it's really good to use that as an example because I, I've always uh, Louis is like my classic example of somebody who's made his entire living basically since the late '80s only doing free software. That's funny because. It, it, that analogy actually kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Why? I don't know. I mean, I just sort of felt like, and I know I not from the way that Luik meant it, because I, I I respect that, and I know where he's coming from. I just I just think that it's it's tough to to sort of, you know, I, I guess I guess at the end of the day, maybe maybe the analogy holds right, which is that the the less meat we eat as a society, you know, across the board, the better off we are. And you can say the same thing about um, proprietary software. Um, you know, and if we could, you know, take measures to reduce our, our production and consumption. Right. I know, I know hardcore vegans who have, have really like advocated strongly to me that I needed to switch. I mean, and I, and I never gave them boo about that because I'm the same way with, uh, with the software issue. Right. So, so I, I mean, I, I just let them advocate to me that I should be a vegan. And in fact, I worked trying to be more vegan based on their advocacy. Um, and it, I've also had those people tell me that it's much more important to convince meat eaters to be vegetarians than, than vegetarians to be vegans just because of a, of an optimization problem. I think we need uh, ethical agriculture across the board. And, and but, I, th I, I, I think I th this ties in with the free software world is the thing. Like, I just, I just think that, I think, I think that, that it's dangerous if we start, if we start skewering folks for, you know, employing some proprietary software. Well, no, because it's that's not what he was saying. What he was saying was, is it, it's a moral choice for him. And, and to, but his point was not that, that I'm trying to tell people they should be vegetarian saying I am a vegetarian, which means that if you say, can you eat meat this one time? It's like, nobody asks a vegetarian, like, well, can't you just eat meat right now? And they wouldn't say they're a vegetarian if they, they eat meat sometimes. Right. So that's well, his point: is that he's he he's he treats free software like, uh, like I do, which is I'm not going to just make an exception because it's convenient right now. 
I mean, I think there are times when it's impossible to interact with society without, um, without having to make some compromises like that. And there are, I'm sure there are, there are analogies in the meat world. Like there are surely, um, you know, societal constructs that rely on some exploitations of animals, um, whether it's, you know, the glue in our stamps that the post office manufacturers, I don't know. I'm, I'm just sort of fabricating, but I just think that there are times when you, you know, you have to interact with it and it doesn't mean that you should stop advocating for it. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't make good choices for you. It's just that, um, I, I guess I just worry about, about how, how we handle our advocacy and how zealous we are. Yeah, well, I, but I don't think I don't see Luik as as a zealous as a zealous. He's not, he's not as zealous as I am. He's it's a much more personal decision for him about what he will do. And well, and and he's 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 a. I mean, fr- frankly, I'll just say this because uh, it's an insult to me, not to Luik. Um, that Luik's a much friendlier person than I am in the sense that Luik will just tell somebody. <laughs> Um, that's not what I want to do, and he'll go off and do something else, and he won't really tell people, uh, basically, it's, in a Stallman-like way, he won't tell somebody, this is wrong for what you're doing, he just, it's a personal choice for him, he, he won't. I don't know, I mean, I think he speaks out when he sees wrongdoing, which is part of why he gave the speech that he did, and why he was well, yeah, but he does so involved yeah. with FSF France. True enough, so but, but he has think a different style than me. He definitely honest. has a different style, and I, I like that a lot. I don't know. I don't mean to to be negative. It's just that for some reason that that struck me the wrong way. But I did like how he said that he incorporates um, free software into his employment contract and insists that he will only write free software and no proprietary software. Oh, I thought that was great. I think something that we all could learn from. Well, this is why this is one of the reasons I get into the argument about developers uh, being the people we need to advocate to. Because if every developer in the world did that tomorrow, then proprietary software wouldn't exist anymore. I mean, it's that simple. I, I just don't think so because of the, how, I mean, how, because the unreasonableness of getting to that point, particularly when it's so easy to get started now developing in some way or another. I was actually talking to somebody today who, uh, who thought I had no background in computers whatsoever, even though he was familiar with my work in this field, which I thought was really interesting, thought that I had never, never programmed at all. Um, and, and I was saying actually that in some ways it's easier now than when I was doing it because, you know, because of the languages that are available and the ways that they're already involved, we are generating new developers every day. And the only way we can get them to be convinced that, um, that proprietary software isn't in the interest of our society is by, by preaching to society generally and showing how bad it is for us. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I, I, uh, no, I and if we, no, I'm not going to say And if we, I don't don't, if we don't cut out, you know, if we don't cut down on the, the consuming public, then I just think yeah, it's going I, to be you forever know, you know generated. Reasons, so, so this is a little bit off topic from the week's talk, but the, I think the reason that it's so difficult to get people to fight for free software now is because there's too much free software. I mean, this is the victim of our success problem that I think nobody ever talks about, which is that you, because you have a free software operating system now, for anything you want to deploy, when you want to deploy to users, you can do it and you can build an application on that platform and all your libraries, all, all sort of your core dependencies are all free software. Most of them LGPL or Apache licensed. So you can build an application really in, in much, it's much, much easier. You don't even have to go into the operating system business or the compiler business and stuff. I mean, you look at these old companies, the old, these old companies like Intel and, and Sun, Sun now Oracle, um, all these companies had their own compilers, their own operating systems. HP still has HP UX floating around. IBM still has AX floating around. They all did these proprietary operating systems because they had to in some sense 
sense because there was no free software operating system that really worked available. They, they based a lot of stuff off BSD, which didn't really, it needed a lot of work. So they just proprietarized it when they did. But the thing is, is now they all deploy on GNU Linux systems and all this stuff. And it's basically, we're at a point now where it's so easy to get involved in development. People don't know what it was like. People don't know what it was like. It, it take MySQL, bring us back. Let me, let me tell you my, well, hey, 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 hey. Okay, okay, okay. Look, people don't realize that before MySQL, as, as an example, which is the example in this thing, before you had a GPL'd database, like you had to deal with Informix. And, and like one of the reasons I'm so hardcore free software, Karen is literally yawning as I'm talking. <laughs> the reason I'm such so hardcore and free software is because I spent, I spent four years of my life part-time writing Informix 4GL and doing Informix database stuff and having bugs they wouldn't fix. Right, and and that's a time when, by the way, Dave Neary was working in Informix at the time. It's his fault. Um, anyway, uh, but that's but my point is, is that it wasn't really Dave Neary's fault. I'm kidding, but the, it was Informix's fault for being proprietary. And now, if you want to write a database application, you've got a series of free software databases to choose from that didn't exist. Yeah, then. actually, I I think what's so what's what's more the the problem is that there are, um, there are comfortable um, environments to develop in that are not free and open. I think that that to me is the is the biggest problem is that is all of but the free software developers free software. that are, but they're that's the problem. They're not free software. I, this is this is the thing when you when when we're you know when when we go to conferences with all free software developers and like more than half of them are using Macs. That's not about there being too much free software available. That's about comfort. That's about convenience. Yeah, but, they all, but they all that made, they, well. You're talking from a desktop perspective, which I agree with you about. But on the server side, the, the problem. I, you're right about the desktop side. I'm talking about this. I was mainly talking about the server side when I said that. The no, server know, side is is as I described it. The desktop side is as you described it, which is I basically guess I'm more focused on the desktop uh, well, side. Uh, not surprising, given not you surprising. <laughs> given that you're executive at GNOME Foundation. So I, I think that the problem. The, but I think it actually bleeds into your problem because the because on the server side, people have so much software freedom. And then they can build proprietary applications on top of it. And then they never face the problems of dealing with somebody else's proprietary software. That they never and become, you know, they never, never become, become hardcore. The and then on the desktop, when it's convenient to use proprietary software, they end up doing so. It's, it's like I was saying on the Floss Foundation's mailing list this week about the, the fact that free software projects are by and large using, if they want video chat, Google Hangouts and Skype. And I have somebody investigating Big Blue Button to maybe Conservancy can provide it to projects. And I'm hearing Big Blue Button may have a dependency on Flash. Yep. Adobe Flash, proprietary software. It's like, great. Uh, somebody on the list was like, a oh, great, a free software solution for this. We're using it. It's great. And then, oh, no, but you need proprietary Flash and it doesn't work with Ganache. So what is that? I mean, yeah. that's that's not software freedom. That's that's giving in to proprietariness when it's convenient. Right. It's choosing convenience. Give me convenience or give me death. Yeah. So very frustrating. Yeah, I mean, this is why. You know, but this is why I think advocating to, to everybody is 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 so important because it's these fundamental concepts that we're all going to have to live with. Yeah, although I don't know, um, but the, the but this wasn't Luigi's <laughs> point. No, Luigi's point, point was was that can a company do this? And I think that if a company is made up of people like Luigi, well, certainly. <laughs> but uh, the so we, is, we were just yeah. saying earlier in the um, in the channel that uh, that you can't really necessarily talk about cloning people, but if we could clone Luigi. Yeah, I mean, but but I think I think that I think I think that the one of the things that he's talking about, which is basically making a company dependent on a code base that's multi copyright held, that can actually it sort of forces the company's interests into 
being friendly to it, being yep. friendly to GPL enforcement, being friendly to the GPL being complied with correctly, because basically they're they're equal equal footing situation. Which I think I think Luis making sort of the same point Michael Meeks was in the sense that yep. multi copyright held projects are really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree I agree with both of them about. But that. what's interesting also is that Luis points out the um, the peculiarities or or maybe not I don't mean that in a negative way, but the um, the individuality of, of French law for enforcement and the way you need to have. Um, you need to have written a certain proportion or a certain amount of the the code base in a certain way in order to be able to enforce on it. And, you know, that's tough because if there's no enforcement, do we have copy left at all? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I've had a lot of, obviously, um, discussions. Uh, I, I should note that Conservancy cooperates with FSF France to do enforcement, and we're represented by the same attorney, and we've had discussions on attorney-client privilege that I don't want to get into too much detail about Don't get this. into any detail about it. Okay, so I won't, I won't <laughs> answer. I, won't, I don't think it's as bad as it sounds. Oh, okay, because I'm just relying on what Luis said in his... In his. I mean, I think, I think that... The courts have a lot. The French courts have more of an uncertainty about copyright. In the way, in in the same way that U.S. courts have this obsession with everything's copyrightable everywhere, up and down, and they want to help the MPAA do whatever they want, enforcement and so forth. That that tradition doesn't exist in the French courts. So there's a lot more open area. There's not cases already about lots of copyright stuff. So and like most lawyers will be, everybody everybody's conservative about what it all means and, until there's yeah, case law. of course. And so there, there just doesn't exist. The well, I guess like my point Duke was just that there might be stuff. uncertainty elsewhere too. So you know, and 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 when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, you know, diversely held copyrights are great for enforcement when you've got individuals that are willing to enforce and legal systems that support that. But where you don't, you know, aggregating copyrights in nonprofits makes a lot of sense. Not necessarily in companies, which is what you know Michael Meeks and indirectly Luik were talking about. But um, but you know, I think there was a usefulness in that. Yeah, I think everybody having a stake is is important. Now, I don't mind for-profit companies having a stake. I, I mean, the interesting thing is the is with the history of Samba and how they avoided having corporate copyrights because they didn't want companies to be enforcing the GPL because they were afraid companies would use it in a way that was not fitting with the community, and they felt that individuals could be trusted more. Now, they recently changed that policy, which I, I think that was more for pragmatic reasons. I don't know if they was that GPL v three. Patent reasons or no? No, no. I don't think it had anything to do with that specifically. I think it was just more generally that, that they felt like letting companies hold copyright was not as much of a risk as it used to be. I, mean, I think more in part of the termination provision of V3 being better in the sense that V2's termination provision being so strong and they didn't want companies to overuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, and, and, and I think V3 is a safer license. It, it, it makes the business models that Luik was talking about less viable because you can fix the violation more easily. And if you were violating, you, you don't have to go back and beg for that proprietary license. You can say, well, I fixed it in time. And then the, the company that wants to do the MySQL business model has to be willing to, uh, to go to court over, are they in compliance now? And right. have to argue these right. crazy compliance scenarios and say, "Oh, SQL is derived from the SQL server, like the like programs written in SQL." Um, by the way, uh, as is the tradition of former CEOs of MySQL, Luke told me he got an email from one of the former CEOs of MySQL about his talk. Oh, really? Um, which I guess we'll get emails now because we talked about it. I, I've gotten many an email from I, I don't know which CEO. There's been many CEOs of MySQL. Martin Miko sent me an email when I when I criticized Eucalyptics publicly. Um, and they can, they can, they tend to come at you, um, when you <laughs> criticize their business model. Um, 
uh, these these uh, proprietary relicensor types. Uh, Martin Mikos's main point in his email to me was that uh, was that 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 I that I if I wanted big profit for free software developers, this was the only way to do it. He literally used the word big profit, and I was like, I don't really want big profit. I just want people to make a living. Yeah. Big profit. Who needs big profit? I'm in the 99 percent man. I don't. I don't have. Big <laughs> I was going to say if we were, if you and I were focused on big profit, we wouldn't be where we are anyway. True enough. Um, multiple people at the uh, at the uh, I, I was ended up being at the New York Stock Exchange on May first because of the Linux Foundation's event there. Yeah. And many of the developers I was talking to were were talking about going outside to join the protesters when the conference was over. Um, and then somebody pointed out something I really thought was, which, if they were giving me a hard time entering the building, which they weren't there when I was entering the building, or leaving for that matter, um, I was going to say to them, well, what operating system do you run? Do you realize I'm going upstairs to uh, to uh, to advocate for companies to give back to a common commons code base under a license that requires share and share alike. And do you have a, what do you have there a Mac? <laughs> there's a major disconnect there, um, yeah. but there's opportunity too, because I think people do under, you know, when you break it down for them, I think the, um, the Occupy protesters really start to understand. Maybe. In I mean, particular. I don't know. I, I, I just don't I've had think, some good conversations. I don't think protesting works anymore because I think that what it, what the way it could change people's minds in the sixties and seventies, it just doesn't change people's minds in the way it did. I think it's wasted time, basically, when you could go set up soup kitchens and do no, other, I mean, other I think, types of work. I think it inspires people. And, and I mean, I think just just seeing how the Occupy Wall Street movement caught fire and, you know, like took on, took a life of its, you know, took on life elsewhere in the country and caused people to hit the streets and think about it. I mean, it was, I mean, it's been a topic that's been discussed. But other than getting people to vote by waving their arms weirdly, what exactly has it gotten done? I, I mean, I think it's certainly raised awareness. People really talk about these issues a lot more than they did now. And we have, we have, um, you know, vocabulary to use that we didn't have before. Like exactly what you said about being the 99%, right? But nobody, but it hasn't changed. I mean, everybody just, the Wall Street people, the politicians are just laughing at those people. Oh. Everybody's just laughing. It's, it, it doesn't have, I mean, the funny thing I is, is that, anyone's laughing. is that as much as like the, the, the tea party, uh, which amusingly used to call themselves the tea baggers until they realized they couldn't call themselves <laughs> that anymore. Um, but the tea party actually for being on the other side completely is much better organized and actually got candidates like Michelle Bachman forward and, and so forth. Yeah. They actually made real change. And, Instead, basically, the, 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 instead of doing what, like, Michael Moore was trying to do 10 years ago, which was point out how conservative Clinton really was and, and how the Democratic Party was not available anymore, um, to, to the people that. Well, you should get involved. With what? With uh, the Occupy movement and help them. And, and so I can get more emails them, from them. conservancy projects who are mad at me. <laughs> I mean, like, every day I get an email from some conservancy project who wants me to do something. I mean. That's, that's the nature of being, uh, uh, overworked and swamped i guess but i mean thing is is that everybody's angry at me all the time and you know i'm not angry with you okay <laughs> all right anyway we've gotten really far off topic Reason Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. 
This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot us. Well, I'm glad that you find this useful. (laughs) Um, I guess that's the best I can do, I suppose.